0: Hi this is Bill Munhausen for the What Makes Sense program and once again I'm back talking about some 60 second clips I did a few years ago and it's my chance to expand on each one of those and maybe give a little more insight into what I was getting at. So with that said let's move on to the first clip. I'm Bill Munhausen for Orion Center Creation Expo. What does the Bible say about the last days? The book of Revelation prophesies the events leading up to the return of Jesus Christ. Scripture reveals a time when men's hearts will grow cold and faith will be diminished. There will be wars and rumors of wars, culminating in a great tribulation, a time of persecution, and the final war at Armageddon. I saw the battlefield with my own eyes on the plains of Israel. It is during that final conflict Jesus will return to reclaim the world he created. Satan and his followers will be thrown into a lake of fire and everyone whose name is written in the book of life will live forever in the presence of God. There will no longer be death or sorrow or evil. Does this sound crazy to you? It's a vision both frightening and wonderful. The question is what believers ought to believe. If we're in these last days, we should be getting prepared and we should be about saving our friends and neighbors for the Lord. It is not a time for fear. Both Christians and non-Christians have been fascinated by the idea of the end of days. I remember years ago watching Mel Gibson in the movie that probably launched his career. It was called Mad Max, and he was um, running around the outback of Australia in a really hot car, uh, kind of fighting with the bad guys. And the, the vision that secularists have about the end times it's it's a time when civilization is collapsing and everything goes back to a kind of barbarianism. And uh, Christians have a very different view because we have something written, inspired by God, that describes that the end times will be both terrifying and wonderful. There's actually a verse that talks about the attitude of non-believers about the end of days. It talks about how uh, a non-believer would say, well, since the beginning of time, things have been going on just as they have. Where is the promise of your prophet's second coming? Nothing's going to change unless it's some kind of natural disaster, nuclear war, some cataclysmic event, maybe global warming, maybe the pandemic, but it's never something that God causes. It's always something that's just part of the world that ends the world. So this little clip talks about the Christian idea, actually God's idea, about what is going to happen at the end of days, and it describes a time when people's hearts will grow colder, they will turn away from God they'll go to their own devices their own pleasures certainly we see a celebration of sinful pleasure in America today and it's happening around the world and this is all pointing to a time of cataclysm because it can't continue forever and at some point there will be an end of days and you want to be on the right side of history when the end of days happens All right, with that said, let's go on to the next clip. I'm Bill Munhausen for Orion Center Expo. One of my wife's favorite things is the variety of woodpeckers in the Ozarks. The woodpecker has an unusually hard beak, and its skull contains built-in shock absorbers that allow the woodpecker to ram that beak into tree trunks, and the siding of your house with equal abandon. It drills holes and uses its ridiculously long tongue to probe for bugs in the siding and soffits. But how did the woodpecker come to be? Some scientists speculate that its unique features came about to enable non-woodpecking birds to adopt a new food source. We can only imagine that robin or blue jay millions of years ago pondering its first tree. Countless beaks were crushed and concussions incurred until finally a woodpecker evolved. But his tongue was too short to get the bugs so he died. Is woodpecker ever Evolution plausible naive stories about evolutionary adaptation are just that stories woodpeckers were designed they were created to protect forest trees from destructive pests the woodpecker is a wonderful example of a creature that has a, a variety of characteristics none of which on their own are useful unless all of them are present Intelligent design theorists refer to this as irreducible complexity, the complex makeup of a creature where all of the characteristics it has have to be together in order to ensure the survivability of the species. It's not something that's easily um, explainable by evolution other than a fantastic, completely unlikely coincidence of characteristics all happening at the same time. So design is the much better explanation. It's the explanation we see when we see any complex device created by human beings and it's the same thing that we see in nature. Some things are just too complicated to evolve because none of the parts would be useful until they're all there. Here's another clip. I'm Bill Munhausen for Orion Center Expo. God could have created the entire cosmos supernaturally. But that's not every creationist's idea. Dr. Barry Setterfield suggests that God could have used the processes he invented to arrange created matter into the cosmos we see today. Both Big Bang and the Bible describe space as being stretched out from a single point. But the Big Bang depends on weak forces like gravity to form stars and galaxies. Setterfield proposes the power of plasma as a strong force to build the universe rapidly. Donald E. Scott's 2006 book, The Electric Sky, examines the possibility that the universe was formed by a plasma's filaments instead of gravity. These new ideas about cosmology have sprung from a nearly universal dissatisfaction with the Big Bang. Evolutionists support Big Bang ideas because they're consistent with the billions of years needed for evolution, but there are other possibilities. You can learn more about plasma at centerfield.org. Creationist ideas about cosmology don't get in the press, and that's why most people don't understand that cosmology doesn't have just one side called the Big Bang. Uh, creationists also have alternative theories. Um, one of the things about uh, Barry Setterfield's uh, ideas is has to do with the speed of light. Uh, he believes that the speed of light, light is a variable. Actually, he believes that the speed of light has been slowing down since the creation and that when we see the speed of light, it's much slower than it used to be Therefore, when we look out at the cosmos and we see millions of light years distance, we're really seeing something that probably was much more compressed in time because of the faster speed of light in the past. There are also other creationist cosmologists who use Big Bang theory and posit a different variable that will account for the Big Bang happening very quickly and for the Earth to be young while the universe is old. The reality is that cosmology has become so theoretical, so mathematical, so lacking in observation, that you can tweak the variables in cosmology to come up with all kinds of models, some ancient earth models, some very recent earth models. And creationists are forcing secular cosmologists to rethink things. And secularists are thinking of different thoughts other than the Big Bang because the Big Bang has so many difficulties that even secularists understand that. Let's go on to another clip. This is Bill Munhausen for Orion Center Expo. Evolutionists claim dinosaurs died off long before people could have seen them alive. Nevertheless, the history of man is full of references to giant reptiles. The oldest histories are often dismissed as myth, such as the Epic of Gilgamesh, which records the king defeating a dinosaur-like monster. Nevertheless, Gilgamesh is seen by scholars as a historical figure. The Sumerian King List indicates Gilgamesh ruled the city of Uruk. He and his son Ur-Lugal rebuilt the sanctuary of the goddess Ninlil. The historian Pliny records that India produced the largest elephants and dragons. Marco Polo described giant serpents with four legs. There are even current reports by Christian missionaries of flying reptiles called ropan in Papua New Guinea. These sightings would never be dismissed if it wasn't for the evolutionary bias which claims that dinosaurs became extinct 65 million years ago. Only dogma prevents scientists from investigating these reports, and our knowledge suffers because of it. Historical accounts of dragons and other unusual creatures have led to the modern craze about something called cryptozoology. Cryptozoologists are people who search for living things that exist mostly in myth or legend or history but have been unproven. So they might look for things like Loch Ness Monster or the Abominable Snowman or some of the dinosaurs that are said to still be living in uh, the Congo. And uh, you might think of them as kooks, as crazy people, but really they're just doing what's logical. They're saying, if we have all of these accounts in history, and admittedly, they're not scientific accounts, they're accounts by ordinary people of sightings of strange animals, then maybe some of these strange animals really do exist and they can be found. Uh, One of the most fascinating parts of this is in Papua New Guinea, Uh, what the uh, little clip says about something called ropen. The ropen are perceived to be like um, flying reptiles, flying dinosaurs, pterodactyls, that kind of a creature. And there's been lots of sightings and we have Western uh, missionaries over there. So it's not just primitive people sighting them, but it's a combination of modern people and primitive people seeing these things. It's not surprising that they're not easy to capture or bring back because most missionaries don't go over there with rifles because they're spreading the gospel, not spreading bullets. So uh, we have a few missionaries who are actually making a concerted effort, but they have to do it kind of in secret because the local government doesn't necessarily think uh, hunting for Ropin is a good thing. So... uh, It's one of those things that uh, is hard to do. It's kind of like the search for Mount Ararat. A lot of the local authorities there don't like uh, Christian creationists trying to find Noah's Ark on Mount Ararat, so they greatly limit the amount of exploration that can take place. So we have a lot of obstacles in our way, but it's interesting that even uh, non-Christians or non-creationists are interested in these kinds of animals that are said to have been seen in historical times, but haven't been officially discovered yet. Let's go on to another clip. This is Bill Munhausen for Orion Center Creation Expo. Pop singer Katy Perry made headlines when she condemned her Christian upbringing, claiming her parents taught her to hate gay people. I don't know whether Katy Perry's claim about her parents is true, but teaching children to follow the Lord is an essential aspect of the gospel. Jesus taught us to disciple the lost, not just tell them the good news and walk away. And discipling is not merely explaining a set of rules. Discipling involves living a God-honoring life of love and grace, as an example for your family and friends. The natural outflow of such a life is love and compassion, never hate and condemnation. It's a matter of what believers ought to believe. We're all failures compared to God's moral law we still have an obligation to teach God's standards to an unbelieving world. His standard of love and mercy is worthy of our aspiration. This clip really isn't about Katy Perry. I don't know Katy Perry. Uh, Haven't paid much attention to her career. I'm sure she's a good singer and an artist and all of that kind of stuff. But um, what it's really about is that judging people is natural. It's true that Christians judge other people by their behavior, but it's also true that other people judge other people about behavior in general. Uh, For example, the woke folk now, if you happen to criticize something that they are championing, they will definitely jump on you about, about it. They're not any more tolerant than any other group of people. It's actually very natural for people to have a sense of what's right and wrong, what they believe in, how they live, and thinking that other people are doing it wrong. The advantage that Christians have is that we actually have an objective standard for what's right and wrong. It's not an objective standard that we made up in our own heads. It's something given to us by our creator God. The secular world, on the other hand, has nothing. It has no roots. It has no source of morality. It's just whatever they decide in the moment. And as we look at the woke generation, you can see that the standards of conduct, the standards of acceptable behavior, keep on evolving and developing and changing. When I was a young man, I never would have expected there would be anything like an LGBTQ movement, because at the time it was pretty well known that somebody who was attracted to the wrong gender was psychologically impaired. And that was even the official stance of the uh, National Association of Psychiatrists, for that matter. So it was pretty much understood. However, the times change. Science didn't change, but people's attitudes change. And from one year to the next, people will find fault with something new. It is kind of the human nature kind of situation it's uh, the way we are it's not necessarily defensible or right but it's something to be expected and it's not unique to christians or atheists or any particular group but again the advantage christians have is we have an objective standard let's go on to the next clip i'm bill munhausen for orion center expo most people know william jennings bryan as the staunch but inept defender of biblical truth from the very fictional Inherit the Wind movie about the Scopes evolution trial. But Bryan was much more the standard-bearer of the Democratic Party and pioneer of the modern liberal progressive movement. A devout Christian, he interpreted the command to love your neighbor as a mandate to champion the common man, rail against big corporations, and oppose the ravages of war. Unfortunately, Bryan couldn't predict that a government powerful enough to defend the common man could be taken over by elitists. His moral and patriotic cause was eventually taken over and transformed by people with a very different agenda. Is the lesson, then, that Christians should stay out of public life? On the contrary, the lesson is we shouldn't stop short of completing the work and thereby allow others to take over and corrupt it. Who would have thought that that famous defender of the Bible, the one who argued against the theory of evolution, would be a liberal democrat? Not just any liberal democrat, but in some people's opinion, the founder of liberalism in the Democratic Party. It's a fascinating thing to think about, how these two political parties have done a flip-flop over the decades, uh, whereas once the Democrats were the champions of the little guy, the common person, to the extent that the common person might be a believer in the Bible, they were perfectly fine with defending the Bible and the common man who believed in the Bible. They were contrary to things being imposed on the public by outside forces. Now, of course, roles have reversed. Now the Republican party is the champion of the little guy, the champion of the constitutionalist, and the Democrat party has been the champion of big government, corporations, uh, elitists, people who want to force their opinions on the whole country. And there are people who stand against the rights of the states to decide certain things on their own. Uh, We recently had Roe v. Wade repealed or reversed, and now the Democratic um, administration wants to push through various kinds of things through the legislature to try to defend abortion rights. So, roles reversed, things have changed. We as Christians have to stay solid, whether we're Democrats or Republicans, we have to to advocate what is true and right okay let's go on to another clip i'm bill munhausen for orion center expo a notable quote came out of the 2017 tony awards when newbie actor ben platt told young people everywhere the things that make you strange are the things that make you powerful the media loved it but it simply reflects their secular humanist worldview. Humanists love diversity because in their view there is no absolute truth or any good thing better than another. But it isn't true. Everybody knows that people united accomplish more than people divided. We intuitively desire to fit in rather than be weird. One of our national mottos is e pluribus unum. Its meaning is that from many people we get one united nation. It reflects the biblical truth expressed by Jesus, that we become one just as he and the Father are one. Oneness is where true strength lies. Being strange is the opposite. It sounds fun and quirky, but it's childish advice. It's intuitive for artistic type people to advocate for individuality and uniqueness, because part of the creative Impulse is to do something unusual, to do something different, to do something that makes you say, "Wow, that's that's cool." I understand that, but we should never really take philosophical advice from artists. Uh, they are fine in doing what they do, but they're not people who um, think it necessarily think it through. Really, if you think about it, being weird just makes you outside of normal, and. Being social creatures, human beings want to be part of the in-crowd. They want to belong. They want to be accepted and loved. And that is the true aspiration of human beings. Artists even want that also. They celebrate their uniqueness, but only if you love their uniqueness. Because they want to be accepted and they want to be part of the in-crowd also. So we shouldn't be naive when we listen to artists. We should recognize that... uh, They are great at what they do, but they're not necessarily articulate about articulate about philosophical concepts. They haven't necessarily thought it through, especially a young guy. I don't know Ben Platt. I don't know what kind of person he is, or I don't even know what he does or what he's been in. That shows you how out of touch I am. So this isn't a criticism of Ben. It's not even a criticism of the arts. It's just trying to put things in perspective i'm bringing in a guest speaker for a few minutes only because i kind of randomly looked around for somebody who talks about belonging and i found this psychiatrist or psychologist i'm not sure the difference and he's having a little conversation with another guy and he talks about the human need for belonging and also something that's really dear to my heart the human need for shared values and community so i'll let him talk for a little bit and then maybe uh Add my conclusions.
1: We're social animals. It's, there's no getting around it. We seek belonging, yeah. right? And um, uh, uh, I'll give you a funny example of how it works. So where, where do you live? Where, where are you right now? I'm in San Diego. Okay, so you're in San Diego. Are you friends with everyone in San Diego? <laughs> of, I, of, I, of, of course I, not, that's ridiculous.
0: I, I, I know where you're going because I use this one too, but, but I'm going- right? of course no, not, I'm it's, not. Yeah. it's ridiculous. But if you
1: go to San Francisco, and you meet somebody from San Diego, you're like, I'm from San Diego. And you guys are like, a shirt or something like that. You have that connection. And then when you're in New York and you meet someone, you're like, I'm from San Diego. They're like, I'm from Los Angeles. You're like, you're both from California. That's right. Right? (laughs) And you go to Paris and you're on the Paris Metro with your family on vacation and you hear an American accent and you turn around and say, hey, where are you guys from? You're from Wichita. We're from San Diego. We're best friends (laughs)
0: because
1: that's human beings. We seek out people who have shared values, shared understanding of how we grew up, shared experiences, and we create tribes because we're safer in tribes. And that person that you just met on the Paris Metro, that tourist family will say, oh my God, have you eaten at this restaurant? And you go, no. And then you will go to a restaurant because tourists told you to, but if a French person, just random stranger French person told you to go to a restaurant, you'd be like that person is insane because there's no trust. Even though they're much better qualified to give you restaurant advice than a random person from Wichita on the Paris Metro. Yeah. That's my point, which is we trust people that we're in the tribe with, you know, for better or for worse. And so ideally you, you want a tribe to form around vision and values, right? So Marines, if if you meet Marines, Marines always talk about the intangibles. They're constantly talking about the intangibles. They're always talking about the intangibles. What they mean is the values, the trust, the love, the brotherhood, the sisterhood, the honor, the courage. They're a values-based organization and they understand that what makes them a unit are the intangibles, just like in your relationship. What makes you love your, your spouse is not that they're pretty. That's nice. What makes you love them and trust them is the shared values, the shared, the shared understanding, the shared vision, right? Yeah. Um, and so when we give an organization a sense, a really clear sense of cause, and it's a values-based organization, it doesn't matter what our politics are. But if you take away any sense of vision or cause, what ends up happening is we start seeking out tribalism, tribal connections based on anything that we can see easily. So you get racial divisions, you get political divisions, you get all of these stupid things that really don't amount to anything. And usually the greater the division based on superficial or political lines, it probably means that we are not being offered a sense of global vision and something that unites us in common cause. Because you know what it's like. Take, take Take any city that has a natural disaster, earthquake, tornado, hurricane, whatever it is, All of a sudden, politics goes away, class goes away, racial divisions go away, and we're all taking care of each other and we're all helping each other. The shared experience. Shared experience. Shared hardship is actually something that releases oxytocin. We talked about that chemical that creates those magical bonds. Shared hardship actually creates common understanding. And so the fact that we are all going through this pandemic, good leaders will talk about how we're all suffering and we all have to help each other. Right? Because again, it's the light at the end of the tunnel speech. We are in somewhere dark right now. Yeah. You know, optimism is not, is not the denial of reality. Right. That's positivity. We don't need that. Like everything's fine. Everything's good. What are you talking about? Look at all this opportunity. You're insane. This is, no, no, that's positivity. That's not helpful. That's ignoring the reality. Optimism is the belief, the undying belief that the future is positive. Yeah. But we can talk in realistic terms about what we're going through now. And the fact is it will be over. It will end. We want it to end sooner rather than later. And we want it to end with as little loss of human life as possible. And we want it to end with our doctors and nurses mentally healthy when they come out of it. Like we we need to work on those three things. But at the end of the day, it's gonna end. Yeah. It's gonna end. It always does. That doesn't mean denial of difficulty. That doesn't mean that it's not struggle but it means now that we can start to work together to work through this and and reinvent our companies and reinvent ourselves.
0: That clip speaks very eloquently about the human desire for unity, for belonging, for being part of a tribe. But the buzzword of the 21st century has been diversity. And diversity is celebrated everywhere. And there are really two threads to this call for diversity. One of the threads is the globalists, the elites who want to create a one-world government, just the kind of one-world government that's predicted in the Bible, part of that last days things that we talked about earlier. The globalists think if we celebrate diversity, if we accept people accepting diversity, if your neighbor could look like he's from a foreign country and you're okay with it, then we might accept that. There's no real reason for the boundaries between nations in the world, and we could just have one world government. The second thread is the socialist communists. They want to emphasize diversity because they want you to, they want to pit one group of people against another group of people. They see that class warfare as a way to gain power and support from different minority groups. Both of those threads are kind of combined and intertwined. Because the, sec- the socialist communists want a world, one-world government. They want that kind of control. They want centralization. I'd like you to consider whether diversity is a purely good thing or whether diversity leads to conflict. The typical American is not the same person as the typical Chinese or the typical South African or the typical person from any other country. Americans are unique. We have a shared experience, a shared set of values, and we are different from other nations. That's the importance of nationhood. It's people joining together because they have a a common sense of purpose and identity. One criticism I have of our public education system is that it emphasizes diversity, a unique identity, instead of promoting the idea that we're all Americans. As, in, as a second-generation immigrant myself, I understand this fully, that when my parents moved here from Germany, they wanted to become American. They didn't want to stay Germans living in an American society. E pluribus unum is not just a fancy Latin phrase. It means out of many individuals, we are one people. That is the essence of nationhood. Thanks for joining us today. Until next time, go out and do good.